Welcome to Zebra Talks, where people living with hypermobility syndromes hear their experiences reflected in conversations with guest experts and fellow zebras living their best bendy lives. I'm your host, Dr. Libby Hinesley, physical therapist and author of Yoga for Bendy People. The information and opinions shared on this podcast should not be taken as medical advice and are not a substitute for diagnosis and treatment by a qualified healthcare professional. And now, let's get started with today's Zebra Talk. Today, I'm so glad to welcome Trina Altman to the podcast. Trina received her training through Stott Pilates as an, and is an ERYT 500 YASEP. She's the creator of Yoga Deconstructed and Pilates Deconstructed, which take an interdisciplinary approach to foster an embodied understanding of yoga and Pilates and their relationship to modern movement science. Trina has presented at Kripalu, the Yoga Alliance Leadership Conference, and Momentum Fest, among others. Her work has been published in Yoga Journal, Yoga International, and Pilates Style Magazine, and her classes have been featured on Yoga International and Yoga Anytime. She's presented two online teacher trainings for Yoga International entitled Creative Sequencing with Somatics and Flow Sequencing with Resistance Bands. Her book, Yoga Deconstructed, Movement Science Principles for Teaching, is available everywhere books are sold. Welcome, Trina, to the podcast. I'm so glad to have you. Thanks for having me. I would love for you to start out by telling listeners a little bit about yourself, in particular, about your experience with hypermobility. Yeah, you know, if I go all the way, all the way back, I remember taking fun little gymnastics classes when I was maybe five, six years old, like really young. I still remember my teacher, Mrs. Mauser. Um, <laughs> and we just did cartwheels and somersaults and walkovers. And it was just so fun. Those types of movements came really easy to me. Mm-hmm. Unlike, say, when I'd go to gym class and I needed to throw a ball, catch a ball, kick <laughs> a ball, or run. <laughs> but I was really active, um, you know, all through my childhood. I, even though I didn't do like team sports, I roller skated, ice skated, um, continued to take gymnastics. I took a few dance classes here and there, but was really not good at it. Just no elastic recoil or there, there was some, but <laughs> the, the choreography, the motor control at that type of speed of dance yes. just wasn't a natural yeah. um, click for me. And yeah, I would say if we speed all the way forward to high school, I did competitive cheerleading when I was in high school. And this would have been 1986. 687 so I was on the junior varsity and then the varsity squad and the competitive cheerleading had just become a thing I think that mm-hmm. NCAA National Cheerleading Association something began two or three years before when we went down to Orlando to compete mm-hmm. and we actually placed fifth in the nation and it was so different so if you watch cheer on Netflix no we were not doing that a hard complicated stuff it was an all women's cheerleading squad we did some pyramids we definitely did lots of tumbling but it was a different world back then and i love that that was the first time doing anything athletic that was competitive or school affiliated as opposed to just 
water skiing at summer camp and mm -hmm. doing some gymnastics in my backyard. So I think that now uh, I'm 51, everything I've read about like all the movement you do when you're young in terms of bone building. So all that jumping up and down on hard floors, doing jumps and all the tumbling sequences I would do on the AstroTurf and the basketball court. I'd wear little wrist things from the drugstore and ankle things from the drugstore. But I think depending on where you are in the spectrum, I was okay. So that was freshman and sophomore year. In high school, junior and senior year, I switched to a different school. I didn't do cheerleading anymore. It was more rigorous. I was studying more. And I remember vividly always having to pop my back, pop my neck, crack my knuckles, feeling so stiff all the time. Because I went from doing all that movement and cheerleading to not really doing much at all other than studying and sitting. And then college came. And as we start to go into what I'm doing now, I have to thank my mom because she was taking high impact aerobics classes when the Jane Fonda thing was big and I would go with her. Uh -huh. um, that was in the 80s. In the 90s, she started taking Pilates mat classes at the gym uh -huh. and I would go with her. When Madonna started strength training and it was all about the Madonna arms, my mom went to a personal trainer at the local gym and I went with her to a couple sessions. Awesome. My dad took up running in the 70s and bought his pair of Nikes and started playing racquetball. I would go with him to the racquetball club and they had Nautilus equipment and I would just play on it unsupervised at like mm -hmm. age 13 while my dad was playing racquetball. <laughs> so yeah, it, I'm so grateful that I grew up pre-high technology stuff because mm -hmm. despite the hypermobility, I was really active. I think also because of it. As I got older, it became harder and harder and more and more painful to sit still and not move. And as college got more rigorous and I had the giant backpack with a whole bunch of books in it from the library to write research papers because nothing was digitized. That's right. <laughs> and I had my first laptop. So I look back and I'm like, oh, that was painful. My back always hurt, but it was actually that I was carrying that heavy backpack, yeah. walking all over campus, up and down hills, and not just sitting and studying all the time. But yeah, I would say, and then I got through my 20s, I switched to working in fashion, was in retail, so I was standing up, which was much, much better than when I had corporate desk jobs. But eventually, when I hit 30 and I was in the corporate world, sitting all day, it was so bad that I would go to, it wasn't Whole Foods, but it was like, <clears throat> pre-Whole Foods, some mm -hmm. sort of co-op place. And I would get my lunch because I knew there was a woman there who had the massage chair thing with your face. And I would pay for a 20, because of clicking the mouse all day, I had horrible carpal tunnel. And I remember somebody being like, well, you can get surgery for that. And there were people where I worked, a lot of them getting surgery for that. Mm -hmm. And that's when I pivoted into realizing I could not have a corporate desk job anymore longer. It was just too painful in my body. Yes. Oh, that makes so much sense. So what happened next? <laughs> <laughs> um, life stuff happened. So I'm 51 now. I met my husband when I was 30. And at that time, actually, I was working in a factory. So I was up and down on my feet all day, which was better than when I had the corporate job. And we started dating. Long story short, he moved for residency and we missed each other a lot. Like he had already moved for his internship year. Mm -hmm. So he left 
where we were together and then came back for me to oh, do yeah. that year. And then he left for residency and I then left where I was and moved to yeah. be with him. So it was kind of a starting over and I started working as a nanny and I loved it because I would take them to the park. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes, I was under whatever you want to call it, underutilizing my Ivy League undergraduate degree, but whatever, I was no longer in pain. <laughs> I was with the person I loved and then I had a little bit of time to do some things I enjoyed. So I started taking some yoga classes. Yeah. And then I kept taking the yoga classes and I'd always been an artist. So metalsmithing mm -hmm. and jewelry making. And that's when I fell in love with yoga. And then Farsad, my husband was uh, like, why don't you do a yoga teacher training? You know, you love yoga. And I was like, oh my God, my parents are already, I'm sure embarrassed to tell their friends that their daughter's a nanny. What are they going to think if they have to tell their friends, their daughter's a yoga teacher? <laughs> And it was the whole discussion of like, who are you living your life for? And I was like, good point. Um, so, yeah. so then I did my 200 hour while I was finishing the 200 hour. I started my 300 hour because we were moving and I loved the teacher that I did my 200 hour with. And then while I was finishing the 300 hour, I worked at a studio that had yoga and Pilates and the Pilates teacher was going on maternity leave and said, there's a reformer training 45 minutes away. We were in Iowa city and that was Cedar Rapids. If you take it and you pass, can you cover my classes? So then I ended up doing that. And then I ended up getting the full Pilates certification. Um, and that was all my thirties. And then we moved to LA where we are now when I guess I was maybe 38. So 2010. So many things that you're saying, I have some parallels to at a really windy road also. I've been to school so many times, it's <laughs> embarrassing. But part of what sent me back to school for physical therapy was I had become a yoga teacher and gotten really interested in the body that way. But professionally, I had been working in nonprofit jobs, desk jobs, and it was just killing me. I was miserably in pain all the time. And I remember being in PT school and finally getting out into clinicals. And this PT had been a PT for a couple decades. He said to me, are you sure you want to do this? This is physical work. Yeah. And in my mind, I was like, is he crazy? Of course I want to do physical work because being still is the worst. Yes. Now, you know, there's, yes. <laughs> it's like stillness is the worst movement is awesome, but it's all about the details. What kind of movement, how much and all that stuff. Yeah. And when your job requires movement, it's different than when you're doing movement for say self-care or mm -hmm. health, because then you're structuring, oh, these are the movements I need to feel good in my body versus these are the movements I need to do to do my job. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. So if you have a physical job, like picking up people's legs and arms and stuff, then you have to be training for that. <laughs> exactly. Which means you have to spend more time when you're not working, doing all the training. Yeah. So there came a point a year or two in of teaching yoga, even though I had this active background of going to the gym and lifting weights in high school and doing things that weren't just say being a dancer and an mm -hmm. acrobat or a stretchy type mm -hmm. of movement. The Pilates, I realized I was like, oh, okay, this is how I can still do some yoga. And when I say Pilates, I mean pushing and pulling resistance on the equipment, not yeah. Matt Pilates. I actually never taught Matt Pilates. I never really enjoyed doing Matt Pilates, probably mostly because of my hypermobility. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't feel anything. Yeah. <laughs> 
around. I've only done Pilates a few times in my life and I just didn't get it. It was just so hard, honestly. I just didn't get it. Yeah, I was lucky that I knew when I saw the Pilates equipment, and I think most people think there's just a reformer, but there's yeah. a reformer, a Cadillac, a Wanda chair, the spring tower, there's the pedipole, there's what's called a guillotine, which I know sounds horrible, but it's what it's called. <laughs> there's a ladder barrel. It looks like a jungle gym. And I loved recess and jungle gym because I was climbing and pulling and doing hard things. And it was just more a financial barrier for me. So I just could never afford it. And it slowly but surely became more and more affordable. And then that really changed things. But I would say it wasn't enough. And I was looking for a personal trainer that knew how to work with hypermobility for a really long time and just couldn't find one until about 2017. So starting in 2017, I did strength training, personal training sessions with him for probably about three and a half years. Then I started working with somebody else. So I would see her once a week and him once a week because their styles were so different. He was a competitive power lifter, whereas she was really well-versed in kettlebells, steel mace, Olympic lifting, a lot of functional type training. I know that's such a broad term, but stuff with the Viper, which is this tube. So three-dimensional, less sadly oriented Mm -hmm. things, which is mostly what power lifting is. And then the pandemic hit. And all of my private clients, and I've always made the bulk of my money teaching private clients. I've always taught group classes ever since I became a teacher in 2007, mm-hmm. eight, but I've always taught private clients. And so they've just kind of come along the journey with me. This is the first time we've lived anywhere long enough. We were always moving mm-hmm. and I was always starting over, which you know how hard that is with yeah. But we've been in LA now for 13 years. So a lot of my private clients have been with me almost the whole time. So whatever I learn new things, I bring it to them and they're always up for it. And I had been wanting them to lift weights for a long time because I was just really seeing the value in it. But the Pilates studio where I taught my privates, we had some dumbbells, but the heaviest was maybe 15 pounds. And and also it's hard. There's like all the Pilates equipment that's so fancy and fun. And so when the pandemic hit, it was like, okay, no more Pilates equipment. Time to hop on Zoom. This is what you need to buy. If you don't want to do Zoom, meet me at the park. I will bring all the weights. And that's when my clients started to transition into weightlifting. That's really cool. So they've had to go through this transformation with you. So maybe the private clients started out doing some yoga and Pilates, and then over time, they slowly started doing strength training as you did, huh? Yeah. And when the pandemic was over and we could go back to meeting in person and doing whatever we wanted, we bought our first house during the pandemic. Congrats. <laughs> work home. I'm like, okay, it's time to adult. You're 49. And we didn't have air conditioning. There's no way I could work from home where we were before. Yeah. Uh, and so instead of going to the park, I put a gym in my garage and I got a reformer for inside the house. Yeah. And they saw so much benefit and change from like just two years of weight training versus say maybe 10 years, eight years of the Pilates and yoga, because that's how progressive overload works. That when it was time to go back, they'll still do some Pilates and yoga with me, especially I have ones that are like two, three times a week. They all now completely prioritize weights and weightlifting. That's amazing. And are a lot of your clients hypermobile as well? 
Yeah, I have several that are hypermobile and kind of in different categories. So I have a lot of teachers that are hypermobile that are Pilates teachers or yoga teachers. Uh, yeah. And then I have hypermobile clients that aren't teachers. And so it's so fascinating because when you get a new client and you can teach so many different things like I can, then it's really just like, I always ask them, what is your goal? What do you want? Do you want to come here and learn how to relax and regulate your nervous system? Do you want to come here and lift weights? Do you want to come here and learn more proprioception on the reformer? What do you want to do? And then a lot of times what they want to do is very much based on their personality Mm -hmm. um, and their beliefs like the information they've received about movement and pain in the past. And then of course, what age they are, what period of their lifetime they're in. So if Mm -hmm. they're about to have babies or just had babies versus about to retire. And then their training history, right? So what did they do for exercise before they came to me? Yeah. So what are some of the patterns and presentations that you typically see in your hypermobile clients? Uh, whether they're movement teachers or non-movement teachers, mm-hmm. and how tough a sell is it to get those people lifting weights? <laughs> right. <laughs> so for the teachers that are coming to me for strength training now, a lot of them, we worked at the same Pilates studio for years and years together. And just like my clients, they've gone on the journey with me. And I would be like, oh, there's these cool balls we're going to roll on. And they come to that workshop or, oh, we're going to do some Feldenkrais mixed with yoga. And then when I start posting like, oh, I'm doing this with my trainer. A lot of them I met when they were in their late twenties, early thirties are now in their mid to late 30s and have had kids and we're like, okay, now it's time to do some strength training because of the effects of being pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, And with the hypermobile people that are not teachers, I've had quite a few who come to me that have been doing Pilates for a really long time on the equipment, Mm -hmm. but just like me, couldn't find a strength coach that knew how to work with hypermobility. So they were even sent to me for Pilates. And first session we do Pilates and then I'm like, Hey, I'm hypermobile too. And I've been lifting weights and it's really helped me a lot. Do you want to try it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's try it. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's so personality based on another client though, who really extremely hypermobile, always went to the gym, just push, 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 like take the spin class, burn it out, rip it up, shred it. Even though she's hypermobile, just kind of like that athlete brain with the hypermobile body. (laughs) So that was a lot more challenging because when you get somebody who hasn't done physical therapy, hasn't done Pilates on the equipment. Even bendy people who've done yoga have really good body awareness, especially I end up getting the ones that did Iyengar, you know, (laughs) and they're like, where should my foot be to do this single leg sit to stand? And I'm like, it should be wherever you can stand up without falling over. (laughs) And so that's really hard because when people come to you without that background or say they come to you without maybe ever doing psychotherapy, Right. Because if you're, you have EDS hypermobility and you've never done any psychotherapy, right? Because it's hard to be in this world as a hypermobile person. Yeah. The anxiety, the hypervigilance, like all of our special needs. And, and then you have all that on top of everything else. I'm sure, you know, as a physical therapist, 
if you get the person who's on their last rope, like mm -hmm. been in horrible pain to the point where they're not driving anywhere, going anywhere, and they also have the POTS, that's a whole nother situation than the person who's been doing Pilates on the equipment for the last 10 years, done lots of psychotherapy and is excited to try weightlifting because yeah. they know it's going to make them feel better. It is. I would say the hardest thing about working with hypermobile people without an extensive movement background is that shift in perspective. It's that acceptance piece that I have a different body. I have these unique special needs. I will always have them. And there's lots of grief to go through with that. But there's also such a strong cultural narrative about movement and pain that is misleading and really scares people about their ability to handle movement. And this is the threading the needle place where you've got a bunch of bendy people who know they need to move, they need to get stronger. But when they try, to exercise, they have more pain. So they're discouraged. Yes. And it's really hard to overcome that. It's just that we have to have this different approach to exposing your body to movements and to loading in a different way. So I would love to hear about what you've found, especially applying the strength training to bendy people. How do you start? What's different about it? Because I feel like those of us who are doing it, we're kind of making it up as we go because there's not a ton of research specifically on strength training in bendy people. Yeah, I approach it in the exact same way I approach teaching yoga or Pilates because when you're hypermobile, you need lots of feedback. Mm -hmm. You need lots of closed kinetic chain. You need lots of um, barriers and constraints. You need things to push and pull. You need as few choices as possible. And so there's just always a way to regress something. And it's really fun, I think. So the way I work with my strength training clients that are hypermobile is really the same as how I would work with somebody who's not in terms of the programming. Mm -hmm. Everyone's going to be doing a squat. And when I say everyone, I mean, Obviously, if this person can't squat for some reason, we find mm -hmm. a workaround until they can. But a squat, a hinge, which is a deadlift. And when I say a squat, there's a million ways to squat. There's a million ways to deadlift. And then a vertical push-pull. So vertical push would be overhead press. Vertical mm -hmm. pull would be like a lot pull down. Mm -hmm. And horizontal push-pull. Yeah. And that is the bare minimum, right? Yeah. That's like, okay, we want you to be nourished and not be nutrient deficient if we're talking in terms of food. And a lot of times that's all they need. So much other fun stuff that I love to teach, yes. but I really keep it at that. And so say it's a squat. If somebody is like me, where they can sit in malasana and <laughs> drink a latte, maybe in terms of adding load, first thing I do is I have the um, core 360 belt which if you've taken the DNS training, the dynamic neuromuscular stabilization training, it's just a belt with a Velcro and it's got these little pokey outy half domes, two in the front on either side of your belly button, two on the back on either side of your spine. Mm. And you inhale and you just try to make the belt bigger all the way around and it gets yeah. you feedback. So I teach them how to brace. Yeah. But I also say it's gonna be more important the heavier we get, but. Yeah. 
is want to lay the foundation. But simple things like I'll put wedges under their feet. Yeah. Um, I will put like a super loosey goosey band around their knees to pull apart. Mm -hmm. um, they've got the belt on. Say I start them just holding a kettlebell in a goblet style and then I have a box and the box can be at three different heights. And then from there we progress. But sometimes I'll have them hold on to the side of the rig or I'll put the barbell across the rig if they need some help getting up and down or I have a belt that you if you want to do pull-ups and make them harder you put mm -hmm. a weight belt on and it's got like a chain yes add, so like say holding the weight in the goblet style is doesn't work for them we put the belt on we hang a weight from it yes um, and they hold on to a bar and they squat up and down and we load them that way and we hang it off the front mm -hmm. or the back if you hang it off the back it prevents that anterior tilt that sometimes happens mm. so there's just endless ways and then we graduate because doing a barbell squat back squat is easier than doing a goblet squat mm. because you've got two things to hold on to two things to connect to mm -hmm. versus here in front of your chest and mm -hmm. some people especially if it pulls them forward mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For some reason, I will take a front squat or a goblet squat any day over a back squat. I don't know what it is between me and back squats. It just is so hard. I'm not sure if it's like my proportions, maybe. I agree. Yeah. But yeah. No, I always say there are front squat people and there are back squat people. <laughs> yeah, I am the front squat person yeah. for whatever reason. But I have found with my bendy people as well, I use something like that weight belt because sometimes they just can't hold a barbell or a kettlebell or anything in their hands because yes. sometimes there's all these hand joint issues and the weird swelling stuff that people are having. And I also got a weighted vest yeah. that I put on people who have limited use of their hands. And that helps a lot too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's so much you can do too with bands and like sometimes you can hook a band or a cable to the bottom of the rig and then say you're standing as if you were going to do Utkatasana, but you have the handle in between your legs and you mm -hmm. do a deadlift that way or the band across the hip crease and it's endless in terms mm -hmm. of ways to teach those skills. But yeah, with the deadlift, I always just start them with a kettlebell on a couple yoga blocks in between their feet. Usually within two sessions, they're already up to doing like a 50 pounder, which means they're ready for the 45 pound hex bar. And yeah. so then I put a box underneath the hex bar on the other side. So no plates. Yeah. Once they're able to get to 55, we put the little plastic discs on either side because yeah. yeah. hex bar deadlifts are easier and more functional because your arms are along your sides versus in between your legs with the yes. Yeah, that's great. I'm finding it hard to have people trust that it's okay to go heavier. I try to emphasize how important it is, especially for bendy people, to lift heavy things. And heavy is person specific, and it just needs to be hard. You can't do 20 reps at something heavy. And we progress there slowly, make sure that we're recovering okay before we get there, but it's scary for people. And I'm seeing that that takes a, a good bit of time to overcome. Yeah, I think because I'm teaching privates, I track everybody's program in a spreadsheet. So the amount we increase, say the week before, and, and of course, increase isn't always in weight. It might be in yeah. range of motion. It might exactly. be in the implement we're using. Like we're using a barbell instead of a hex bar. And a barbell is a lot harder to deadlift than a hex bar, even if it's a lot lighter because yeah. the weight's in front of you and not on the sides and all the way around. Um, but what I'll do is say like, 
it basically it's reps and reserve rate of perceived exertion. Yes. How did that feel? Did you feel like you could go a little heavier? And they'll either say yes or no. And if they say no, then say we're doing three sets of six reps. When they get to the fifth rep of the last set, I'll say we're doing six, but if you get to six and you feel like you can do more, go for it. It's your last mm -hmm. set. Mm -hmm. And if they can do 10 reps on that last set, then the next week I take them up <laughs> and they're not really looking at their spreadsheet and being like, oh, she added 2.5 pounds to my <laughs> bar and I don't want her to do that. Versus if you're in a group class and you have to tell somebody, go grab the eight pound dumbbells and they're used to grabbing the five. Right. It's a different scenario. I'm setting it up. I'm taking it down and I'm really just wanting them to pay attention to this should feel hard enough that when you get to the last rep, you could maybe do two more, but that would be really challenging. Yeah. And they get that. Yeah, we use that rate of perceived exertion or reps in reserve to gauge that. And I think that some people, they're really stuck in this three sets of 10 or three sets of 20 mindset. I keep saying, no, three sets of five. You know, I never do more than five or six reps of a strength exercise. Otherwise, it's not heavy enough. Yeah. Are you working in like small group classes? It's a small group class for specifically people with hypermobility. Yeah. That's hard because when it's one-on-one, -on -one, there's more of this, they know I'm hypermobile. They know they're hypermobile. They know I started on this journey way before they did. And, and they're not in that mindset of, oh, I've lifted weights in the past. Well, usually that means dumbbells. This is a hex bar. This is a landmine. This is a Viking handle on the landmine. This is a barbell. These are bumper plates, right? It's a whole different category. And so there's none of all that baggage. And, you know, when I'll say, oh yeah, I remember when I first started and I was deadlifting with a 15 pound goblet and now I'm deadlifting 135 pounds. And they'll be like, you don't look like you deadlift 130. I'm like, no, I know. <laughs> but I also don't have pain at night when I'm sleeping. And then they're like, hmm. And they just understand the logic of, I have too much range of motion. If I strength train, I'll have range of motion that's more like a normal person. Mm -hmm. And I'll be able to do daily life activities that involve lifting things that I used to have to ask somebody else to do for me versus that group class of like, we're in the group class, the music is going, but we're going to grab our dumbbells and we're just going to go, go, go. And I'm like, no, we are doing this set. And then I force them to rest in between and they yeah. want to start their next set. And I said, no, yes. until your heart rate comes back down, we don't start the next set. Yes, that's so key. That's been probably the most critical thing for me. You were talking about how difficult it is to find a strength and conditioning coach who's familiar with hypermobility. I was in the same boat a couple of years ago and I started working with my strength coach and basically I worked with her for a year and I was the guinea pig for both of us a little bit. And mostly we were having to work on recovery. That was my biggest thing. I could deadlift 120 pounds and it was fine. And then I would be laid out for five days with horrible fatigue and horrible soreness. And I just couldn't figure out how to start and why the recovery was so hard. So we backed way up to zero and worked on recovery. And that's part of it is between sets rest for a long time. And if you have pots, you're not standing up to rest. Right. I'm on the ground to rest. Yes. Lying on your back. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, and the other thing that I've really noticed is it takes more weight to understand a movement sometimes. And that is counterintuitive. 
because we always want to learn a movement, get the technique and the form down. And you think we should do that before we add load. And of course, we should start with five pounds and then go to 10 and 15 and 20. But sometimes I see people at really low weights. They just can't figure the movement out. It's not integrated. Their brain and their body just aren't connecting. And that would seem to be intuitively not the right time to add more weight. But if we do add weight, they get it. And it's like, oh, wow, this makes sense now. And they just needed more stimulation. Do you see that too? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, the load is what creates the connections. The load is what helps you organize yourself. Yeah. The load is what enables you to say it's a bar and you're trying to break the bar or it's the kettlebell handle and you're trying to pull the handle apart. And so these isometric contractions and full body racing, squeeze everything stuff, we have to do like 2000 times harder than the average person because of our connective tissue. Mm -hmm. And we can't do that without a heavy enough thing to grip, hold, and you know. Yeah, it's like the load is the tension. It adds tension to the system that doesn't have enough tension to be functional. <laughs> it's like, and the load is that, so that does make sense. I have another question for you. There's stability training and then there's strength training. So many people I hear talking about hypermobility often are very adamant that we have to do one thing and then the other, like we have to just be really stable before we ever get to strength training. And the problem is no one ever gets to strength training that way. They'll just never get there. And depending on someone's life, most people who are out there high functioning, walking around people are lifting stuff. They're lifting their groceries and their kids and they're loading up for vacations or whatever. So in my mind, I would rather just go straight for strength training. I mean, I don't see a reason to wait. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I agree 100,000 million percent. <laughs> um, as somebody who did physical therapy for years and years, paid out of pocket just to learn because I loved my physical therapist mm -hmm. and I would book out like a year in advance once every month and bring all my notes from my clients and learned all the stability exercises in physical therapy and in, and in Pilates, like it's called pre-Pilates. And I think that education was useful but I could have gotten so much further, so much faster if I had just done the strength training only and not done that stuff because the quote unquote stability stuff you do on the reformer or the Cadillac or the Wanda chair is a little more like strength training because you're pushing and pulling yeah. versus a little teeny tiny stretchy band exercise or squishy ball under your sacrum exercise, you know, whatever. Yeah. Because when I think back, I've been doing yoga for so long, I can't remember, and teaching for a really long time, I finally can do single leg transitions from say crescent lunge to warrior three without falling all over the place. And it took me about seven years of strength training <laughs> <laughs> because I had to do bilateral everything for so long. I think it was really the pandemic because I upped my strength training to twice a week mm -hmm. that finally got me to be able to do single leg deadlifts, which then allowed me to finally be able to do yoga transitions on one leg without falling over. Same with my experience as well. And in order to do these strength movements, it's not like I'm not building my stability muscles up either. They're integrated. These are whole body functional movements. And 
everything's on board. So I don't really see the problem there, but I just think there's a lot of fear about strength training. So hopefully over time, many people come to learn that it's not scary. <laughs> yeah, and this is like a total hypothesis. I could be completely wrong, but I feel like the stability industry, industrial complex, so to speak, that came <laughs> about because everything movement related is so male biased and all the money for anything physical comes from sports teams and universities and all the research is done on college guys and most college athletes um, or professional athletes are usually really strong, but then they have these quote unquote movement deficits because mm -hmm. they've only trained in one sport or they don't have a lot of body awareness because they spent their whole time just getting faster at running or better at throwing. And so that is the missing piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. But that's for that population. Like, yeah, that might make their pitch a lot faster. And so they're going to win the World Series, but they're already strong and they're already fast. And mm -hmm. it's the stability to just that little neuromotor thing that's missing. Yeah. Versus yeah. somebody who's hypermobile, how are you going to have stability unless you have a base level of strength? Yeah. Some of the bendy people I work with who have some background in strength training, they've been using their momentum for that activity because we love momentum. We just will do anything fast because it's so much easier. And they'll come to class and we sometimes will even use a metronome app to really slow down, usually like a five second eccentric phase. And they are just like, what is happening? This is crazy hard to slow down. And sometimes we'll do a two or three second concentric phase just as like a ballpark starting point. But yeah. that slow eccentric loading is so hard. And that is stability in motion. That's motor control. And that's functional stability. Stability isn't rigid. We don't hold a plank and actually do anything in life. <laughs> Exactly. And then of course the grip strength that results from lifting weights that if you are just doing little light dumbbells or stretchy band that changes everything, literally. Yeah, it really does. I bring this up to my strength training class a lot, the research on grip strength and longevity. <laughs> you can look it up if you're interested, but it's research that correlated the stronger the grip, the longer these people lived, all causes of mortality. And don't just go out and do grip strengthening. That's not really the point, but I think grip strength is a proxy for functional strength. Yeah. And I think simple things like picking up your carry on luggage in yeah. your right hand and doing a single arm farmer carry, you know, I used to avoid it at all costs because it felt like my shoulder was coming out of the socket when I get all the nerves, I didn't have any tension from my hand up through. And now every time I travel, I am like, cool, going to do my single arm farmer carry. I take the stairs instead of the elevator. And it's just so functional versus, oh, I'm really good at headstand and shoulder stand and handstand and wheel pose, but it wasn't any good other than taking pictures of it. <laughs> I know. I just was traveling on an airplane a week or two ago with my little carry-on bag and getting it into the overhead bin was really hard. And I was like, okay, we are working on overhead press. <laughs> this has got to happen because I'm like, I've never had that much trouble putting my bag in the overhead bin. And I would like to be able to do that when I'm old. Yeah. Every session 
my client does overhead push pull, mm-hmm. horizontal push pull, mm-hmm. squat hinge. Yeah. Sometimes if they need more rest and they're like a twice a week person, mm-hmm. then we'll do squat hinge, vertical push pull on Monday, and then say squat hinge with horizontal push pull on Wednesday. Okay. But none of those four upper body category should ever be missing from your movement diet and the two lower body categories. I, I always say it's the bare, bare minimum. Yep. That's a good bare minimum. What are some examples of squats? The squat is like a category of movement. So yeah, uh, the squat can be with the landmine. It could be with the landmine with the Viking handle. Mm-hmm. It could be with the barbell. It could be with the kettlebell. It could be with dumbbells, one or two. A lot of times we'll do like a single leg squat. So I attach a band. So so let's say the barbell rig is to my right. So the right Mm -hmm. side of my body is lined up with the the rig. And there's a band at the bottom that's um, around my right ankle with a slider Mm -hmm. under that foot. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I'm holding the kettlebell either goblet style with both hands or maybe one hand the left, but I usually do goblet style. Um, My feet are turned out as if I were gonna do a regular squat. It's kind of like a a Cossack, I guess you would say. Mm -hmm. So the right foot slides out as I lower down. So I'm squatting with the left hand. And then as I stand up, I pull in on the band. Mm -hmm. So it's like a single leg squat with a adductor, you know, it's it's a Cossack. But it's still in the squat category. Yeah, that's fabulous. And would you put step ups in the squat category? Yeah, I definitely do step ups, but I always say once we can do things at a decent level of strength with two feet on the ground, then the sort of gateway drug to single leg stuff like a step up is a kickstand. So I always go to stand deadlift. We might do a kickstand sit to stand. And then from kickstand, I take them to split squat. So marriage proposal, half kneeling, always doing it with the forward lean, not straight up. I like the straight up, but it's just not as functional. I call it the robot yoga pose thing. And especially if I want them to be able to do it with a barbell on their back at some point. Anyways, you can do it both ways, but yes. And then from split squats, we go to single leg deadlifts single leg squats. So instead of a kickstand, single leg sit to stand, maybe you just put your foot against the box Mm -hmm. as you go up and down. And then maybe finally, we're doing some marches with farmer carries to strengthen Mm -hmm. whatever hip flexor strengthening we do, step downs. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That's great. I love hearing about what you're doing with people. It's fabulous. Do you have any final words of encouragement or tips for the bendy people out there just trying to live their best bendy lives? Yeah, I mean, we kind of already talked about this, but I have a client who's hypermobile who's like 32. So she's one of my younger clients. And just remembering back to when I was 32, if there's a way you can have a job where you're not stuck at a desk all day. So even if you, like she's corporate, but she was remote during the pandemic and now I think a little more remote. So like if you're at home, you can still type on your computer all day, but you can lie on your belly and lie on your back and squat versus I think the worst scenario if you're bendy is if you have to sit at a desk for eight hours a day, it's almost impossible to live a good life. Yeah, I agree. 
good words of advice. I know. And luckily I do thank the pandemic for making the corporate slave cubicle situation mm-hmm. uh, a thing of the past, or at least maybe only a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday thing. And now people mm-hmm. are working from remote Monday, Friday or something. Yeah. Yeah. Five hours have... a week, eight hours a day, it will kill you. Yeah. So hopefully people are finding a little bit more freedom to move their bodies with that loosening of the grip on that corporate cubicle. And then I would say if you're moving more, that's step one, because you're not chained to your desk. And then step two is strength training twice a week. Yes. Now when I do yoga, (laughs) it's like, I actually feel stretch. And that was my goal. I stiffened up my connective tissues all over my body because of the regular strength training twice a week for the last seven years that I am like a normal person taking a yoga class who actually feels stretch when I do something stretchy, which was never the case for 40, whatever, Mm -hmm. five years of my life. Yep. Totally same, same. So you don't have to give up your yoga. (laughs) You just have to get stronger and stiffer. And the strength training is literally like, even if you could only do once a week. I did once a week for about a year. It took me a long time to add that second day. Um, And actually what I'm finding now, as I'm more consistent with two days of strength training, and I do several days of cardiovascular different things, is that the more I'm doing now, because I'm over this big hump, is I'm, I'm not getting sore anymore. Actually. Isn't that crazy? And I know we didn't talk about plyometric stuff, but if we want to do like a part two or something, just to be really optimistic, I never dreamed that there would be a day that I could hop up and down on a hardwood floor like I did when I was 14 and 15 yeah. and not be in horrible pain or sprain yeah. something. And I can do that now. And that's amazing. And with the strength training, the cool thing is once you have that base layer strength, not only are you a normal person in your yoga class, but the split squats that I couldn't do for five years, I guess they call them jumping lunges. It's mm-hmm. a basically a split squat where you change in the air. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I can do those now. I actually yeah. really am interested in that. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot. Where and when and how will I know is it appropriate to bring in power and plyometric stuff? Because I don't know, but it's important functionally. And my personal goal, I would love to be able to run like a mile. I mean, I'm finally able to run a little bit and I never, ever, ever thought I could not a mile, no way, but I can do on a treadmill where I'll run for 30 seconds or 60 seconds, which for me is huge. It is huge. It is I huge. tried that and failed many times. <laughs> yes. I would really love for my body to be able to handle jogging, slow jogging. So what I'll tell you is start actually sprinting because that was my mistake that I made was jogging. So run as fast as you can on the hardest surface, like pavement for a very short distance, like half a block mm-hmm. and just do it once a week mm-hmm. for a a long, long time mm-hmm. and just go as fast. And when I say sprint, I don't know that I look like I'm sprinting, <laughs> just running as fast as I can. And that was one of the entryways for me, because if you try to jog slowly and you're on anything that's not super hard, which I thought would be the opposite. I was always looking for the wood chips or mm-hmm. the gravel. And that was my mistake. Interesting. This is good food for thought. 
I don't know what the world would make of me trying to sprint. That sounds crazy. Like my arms and legs are not coordinated when I try to run at all. I mean, literally when I do it, I still, I just like pump your arms, Trina, pump your arms, go as fast as you can, go as fast as you can. And it's super short. It's maybe 10 seconds, 20 seconds. I'm thinking of just a few things like leaning forward as opposed mm -hmm. to being upright, like spreading my pinky toes out, which I learned this from Jennifer Pilati, who's a really incredible running specialist. Mm -hmm. And yeah, if you have that base level of strength training under your belt, yeah, just try it. Okay, it'll be interesting. Half yeah. a block, maybe 20 seconds, once a week, maybe mm -hmm. twice a week. That's it, though. No more. And then build up from there. That and okay. skipping. Skipping. Oh, skipping's a great idea. Skipping yeah. and pogo hops. All right. Yeah, that's good. But a bigger topic also yes, yeah, to explore sometimes <laughs> for sure. And I think it's important and it's like the next frontier in my mind. Well, yeah. and for bone loss, the strength training is so, so helpful for preventing osteopenia and osteoporosis, <laughs> but so is the impact. Yep. Yep. Well, this has been fabulous and fascinating. I've learned a lot. Thank you, Trina, so much for being here and sharing your experience and your personal story and also your insights you've gained professionally. How about let listeners know where they can find you and more about your work? Yeah, my website, which is my name, TrinaAltman.com. And my Instagram is also at TrinaAltman. And you can find everything on my website, my book, how to reach me if you want to do private sessions, upcoming continuing education courses that I have that are live and online. Fabulous. Okay. Thanks so much. And listeners, thanks for tuning in. Until next time. Mm -hmm.